following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. What's going on, everybody? I'm The Nightmare. And I'm Rotten Jack. And this This is Common Common Debauchery. Common Debauchery may contain mature subject matter and is intended for adult audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Common Debauchery. I am here with you today. I am the Nightmare, and as always, I am joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the rottenest of the Jacks, Rotten Jack. What's up, buddy? Hello. Hey, we are. I'm getting excited about these promos and these intros. Uh, we're doing good stuff. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, first and foremost, we have some news. We have some fun news. Um, we are. We've decided to do a friendly weight loss challenge. Yes, we're both uh, fat fucks. We are. We are both. We are both larger than we wish to be. And the fun part about this is we're not doing it for money. Uh, we're also not putting a time limit on it. We are just doing it so we are going to check in with each other every month on a weigh-in and just say, hey, how you doing? Well, I gained three pounds this month. And then we're going to insult the crap out of each other yep. until we basically abuse one another into submission submission, and getting healthier, thinner, and fitter. Yes. Uh, I miss the days of being in great shape. Uh, I Every day I look at my arms, I miss how big they used to was. And... I, you know, I kind of want to get back to it. So my man, Rotten Jack, used to be a swimmer and a military boy. So he was he's used to being in really good shape. And we've both yeah. kind of fallen off the wagon here. Uh, I mean, time to get back on. It was kind of just like, you know, swimming six miles a day. Like I was I could I used to be able to eat like a large pizza by myself without even thinking about it. Yeah. Now it's like wake up having lost a few pounds. Right. Like now it's like I eat two slices and I get winded. Um, and then like in the military, like it was just forced workouts and stuff like right. that so like you didn't have a choice you had was, to do the work i was in very good shape but when i got out i was kind of just like hey, i was forced to do this shit for so long like, i just don't want to do it anymore right and i just you know i've been out for eight years now and i just really haven't ever got back into it and now i look at myself and you know it, it's funny to think back that i used to look at myself in high school at like 185 195 I remember in college when I hit 205 and I thought, oh, my God, I am a fat piece of shit. And now I'm just like, I would kill to be 230 right now. So perspective being everything. Um, I went in for I, freshman football at I, 210. I, I, want, I want to be high school fat again. All right. <laughs> you would be both, man. I was 255 my senior year. And looking back at those pictures, I was svelte. And then, like, I bulked up a little bit for college going into my first year of football. And yeah, going from there, like I, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of parties, a lot of, yeah, you know, a lot of junk food, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of meals on the road. And, you know, I got in really good shape again when I, you know, for my fighting career and, uh, which is where I get my nickname, the nightmare. And then, you know, a massive pulmonary embolism and basically being told by doctors that you can't eat things that promote blood clots. So things that are high in vitamin K. And if you look up that list of foods, it's all green and healthy. So they're like, yeah, try to lose weight, but here's your diet of meat and carbs. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, So yeah, this is something to kind of kick our asses into gear. We will keep you guys updated monthly. Uh, Our first weigh in was, or is today slash tomorrow, depending upon when you're listening and when we're recording, we're recording on Monday. Usually you'll be listening on Tuesday or later. So uh, first way, will be technically Tuesday ish and uh, we'll go from there. We'll keep you guys posted on how we're doing and how the insult train is going outside of that. Uh, we are here and we are discussing some cool stuff today. Uh, we are doing 
I don't know. Would you call these conspiracy theories? Would you call these? Would, yeah, would we call it conspiracy theory 2.0 or would we just do like history's mysteries? These are kind of history's mysteries. Um, so these are basically unsolved cases of strange, weird and peculiar occurrences. Um, so I'm going to let you go first because I just thought of a third one. So we'll both have three. Okay. And we'll go from there. Uh, so I'm going to start, um, with DB Cooper. Ooh. Uh, I mean, there's, there's not much that, you know, how does a guy rob a plane or like hijack a plane and then just jump out the back of it and disappear and no one knows who he was and they never saw him again. Right. Uh, so for those of you playing along at home who don't know about DB Cooper, first of all, what fucking rock are you living under? Like. Everyone knows about D.B. Cooper. He was in a kid's rock song as a lyric for D.B. Cooper and the money he took. Yes. You can look for answers, but that ain't fun. So get in the pit and try to love someone. Um, so basically, uh, God, what was it in the 70s? Had to be, I think it was the 70s. Uh, D.B. Cooper, which it's not his real name. Uh, they don't know his real name. This is just the alias that he used, was a very well-dressed man, boarded a plane uh, in the Pacific Northwest, um, during the flight, he handed the stewardess a note that said, I have a bomb. And when the flight landed, uh, he demanded, I think it, I don't know the exact amount of money. He demanded a large amount of money. So I can, I can fill in some, uh, some blanks here for you. Cause I have sure. it in front of me. Uh, so he was on a Boeing 727. In the airspace between Portland and Seattle on the afternoon of November 24th, 1971. Uh, and after a stop at the Seattle-Tacoma airport, he col- he demanded $200,000, which is equivalent to $1.28 million today, and four parachutes. And then he leapt to an uncertain fate over southwestern Washington. Go ahead. Yeah. So basically, he got the parachutes, he got the money. Uh, and he basically told the pilots to take back off and start flying towards Mexico is basically what happened. And then at some point uh, during the flight, he, uh, the Boeing 727s back then, they had a, you didn't load and unload passengers from like the side cabin door like you do nowadays. They had a rear like kind of like fold down ramp that right. came out the ass of the plane uh, so kind of like you would see on a, not uh, like a C one like thirty, yeah, like like a transport plane, right? Yeah, but it was just a staircase, right? That came down, right? Um, and somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, uh, between Seattle and Tacoma, he um, he lowered the ramp, and the pilots felt a jolt from him leaping, and then he was just gone. He jumped out the back of the plane with the money. Apparently, there was a terrible storm that he jumped out into, uh, never to be heard from or seen again. However, in the early 90s, they did find some of the money in, uh, I think there was a a little kid that was digging along a riverbank somewhere up there and uh, started digging up all these dollar bills and shit like that. And uh, somehow the FBI and stuff ended up getting involved. I don't know who called them or how they got involved, but it was, uh, you know, the FBI came in and they, they matched the serial numbers to some of the money that was given to D.B. Cooper. 
So they don't know if he, when he jumped out of the plane, if he just ditched some of the money. Did he die when he jumped? Did his parachute not go off? Did he just die in the wilderness? Nobody knows. Nobody even knows who this guy actually was or if he survived. Yeah, so um, some interesting notes about this. It ended up causing an extensive 45-year-long FBI investigation after an extensive manhunt. I'm pretty sure it's like it's not necessarily a cold case. It's uh, still active. The, the investigation was suspended in 2016. But they're not exactly right. Like, they didn't like file it and put it away. Either. Right. Uh, so it remains the only unsolved air piracy in commercial aviation history. Uh, the do whoever did this purchased an airline ticket using the alias Dan Cooper, but because of a news miscommunication, he became known as DB Cooper. So he actually was, should have been this, his pseudonym was actually Dan Cooper and, uh, DB Cooper was actually because of a mistake in the papers. Um, so available evidence and preponderance of expert opinion suggests that Cooper probably didn't survive his high-risk jump, but the FBI nevertheless maintained an active investigation for 45 years after the hijacking. Despite a case file that grew to over 60 volumes over that period, no definitive conclusions were reached regarding Cooper's true identity or fate. Uh, there are numerous theories widely varying plausibility have been proposed over the years by reporters, investigators, and amateur enthusiasts. Uh, a young boy discovered a small cache of banknotes from the ransom along the banks of the Columbia River in 1980, which triggered renewed interest, but ultimately only deemed deepened the mystery. Uh, the great majority of the ransom remains uncovered, unrecovered, uh, and the FBI officially suspended active investigation in the case of July 2016. But the agency continues to request any, that any physical evidence that might emerge related to the parachutes or the ransom money be submitted for analysis. Uh they, Some, had, they had a bunch of confessions and stuff like deathbed confessions given to them, like people just claiming like I was D.B. Cooper right. like, on their deathbed. But there's no like evidence that he left behind. There's no like trace DNA or anything that right. he left behind on the plane. Uh, so, you know, take those with a grain of salt, like especially when like uh, a bunch of people uh, claimed they were D.B. Cooper. I mean, the the FBI had a a bunch of suspects but ultimately they were never really able to do anything with it it was just like oh i think it might be this guy or i think it might be that guy they think that he might have been some kind of tv repairman because of uh some of the evidence he left behind uh, right it was it had to deal with like stuff that uh was used in like repairing old tube tvs and stuff like that um but ultimately there was never enough evidence for them to link anyone seriously to it so um during the search for the ransom money uh a month after the hijacking the fbi distributed lists of the ransom serial ransom note serial numbers to financial financial institutions casinos racetracks and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions and to law enforcement agencies around the world northwest orient offered a reward of 15 percent of the recovered money to a maximum of twenty-five thousand dollars on uh, early 1972, U.S. General John and Mitchell released the serial numbers of the general public. And then later on in 72, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with the Cooper serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in an exchange for an interview with the man they falsely claimed was D.B. Cooper. Genius. 
Right? Absolute genius. That's fucking So a hilarious. dude who got away with piracy inspired other people to get away with more money from like claiming to be him. Right. That's the stuff of legend. This is this is why DB Cooper will go down in like glorious infamy for the rest of his life. Like I mean, obviously he's probably dead by now if he didn't uh, yeah. already die in that jump. Um but like it's one of those things kind of like the Zodiac killer. Like we will never know. They'll they'll never figure it out. No. Uh, more like so. Then in early '73, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered a thousand dollars to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI office. In, uh, then in Seattle, the Post Intelligencer, that's a weird word, made a similar offer with a five thousand dollar reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving of 1974, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were found. Uh, in 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer. Global Indemnity Co. complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airline's $180,000 claim on the ransom money. Wow. So the, the the airlines that gave up the ransom money like got their like some of their money back right. from an insurance company. Oh man. Um there was some recovered ransom money like if we had disclosure like we we could go on this topic forever. Right. Um, so we're going to move on because we have six of these to get through and, you know, we only have so much time. Uh, the one that I thought of while we were talking is the mystery of Portlock, Alaska. Oh, I don't even know anything about this. Portlock, Alaska is a ghost town in the U.S. state of Alaska located on the southern edge of the Kenai Peninsula around 16 miles south of Seldovia. It is located in Port Chatham Bay after which an adjacent community takes its namesake. Named after Nathaniel Portlock, the town was an active cannery community for the early 20th century. The resident, residents of the town pop, pur, purportedly fled in mass in 1950 after a number of unsolved murders and disappearances. So, Portlock was established in the peninsula in the early 20th century uh, as a cannery, particularly for salmon. Salmon. Uh, it is thought to have been named for Captain Nathaniel Portlock, which we already talked about, British ship captain who sailed there in 1786. In 1921, the U.S. Post Office opened in the town. The population largely consisted of Russian alouettes. Around the 1940s, it was reported that several doll sheep hunters had disappeared in the hills outside of Portlock. It was also stated in 1973 in a 1973 article from the Anchorage Daily News that dismembered bodies of some of the missing had washed ashore in the lagoon. These events led to the residents of the community to flee in mass and the town's post office officially closed between 1950 and 1951. Portlock, uh, that's nearby communities, demographics. So basically, the there were a lot of things um, that happened more than just that one disappearance. And... It caused like I don't think one disappearance with some dismembered body parts washing up make people flee. Uh, so no, there's got to be a lot more going on. Than so that. Uh, residents of the nearby villages of Seldovia, Nanwalek, and Port Graham report that the area is haunted, uh, including Portlock, Chatham Bay, and Chrome, the site of the chromium mine. 
Portlock be- began to become well known as one of the creepiest places in Alaska. Many are afraid to visit the area due to unexplained circumstances that continue to happen to this day in the small town. 1905, it was reported the workers left their cannery jobs due to something mysterious that was bothering the camp. The cannery workers returned the next season, but unexplained events were continually reported. There was an air of fear and mystery that began to pervade the small town. Hunters and gold miners were headed into the mountains, started to disappear in 1931. One man that was chopping wood was found murdered seemingly by a single blow that seemed stronger than a human could manage. This alarmed the townspeople. One group hunting a moose reportedly finding giant footprints also stalking the same animal. They arrived at the site of a bloody battle with no and, and no moose was found. Footprints over 18 inches long headed from that spot into the foggy mountains. Occurrences like this began to show up regularly. Sounds like a Yeti. Resident saw a huge hairy man destroying fish wheels along the beach. He he ran back to get his gun. When he returned, the beast had stared, just stared at him and walked off. The sightings unease began to ramp up in the town. Bodies were recovered, washing, uh, having washed down rivers into the lagoon. Strange wounds could that no bear could make. Uh, the loss of these lives took a toll on the small community and fear set in. People started to leave with unexplained disappearances and murders. No one felt they could take a chance to continue to live here. Uh, residents took off in mass in 49, leaving their houses, the nearby chromium mine, the cannery, teacher cottage, the large schoolhouse to return to the wilderness. This left Portlock an abandoned town in Alaska and one of one that many people will never wanted to return to. Uh, only the postmaster remained after a year alone. The post office closed in, in 1950 and the last resident of Portlock left town. Even the postmaster couldn't continue on in this town. The town experience is over 50 years of hauntings, murders and disappearances before the townspeople gave up and left. Uh, in the local dialect of El Tuik, the language of the area, the creature is called Anantakanyi. Sure, Anantakanyi, half man, half beast. In the 1970s, fishermen forced to take refuge from a storm reported something strange walked through their camp on two feet. It terrified them, and they left as soon as possible. Seventy years after the haunting started, they were still continued when people visited the area. Uh, the ghost town of Portlock is a mysterious story. Whether it, whether or not it's a stronghold of Bigfoot in Alaska, you can decide for yourself. The disappearances and the bodies found were too horrible for anyone to continue living in the small town. That is the story of Portlock, Alaska, my friend. Hmm. So basically, so where are we going? <laughs> right, because I want to go to Alaska one way or another. Right. Uh, you know, I always see the, like the ads on Facebook, uh, the the Alaska State Troopers posting recruitment stuff, and I'm like, eh, maybe. Post me there. Right. I want to be the guy that makes sure nobody goes to Portlock. <laughs> I'm going to befriend this fucking Oh, yeah, thing. I want to befriend a Yeti. You're like, listen, you don't kill me, I'll bring some fresh meat for you every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, I'll find some, I'll find some townsfolk I don't like. Yeah. Hey, come here. <laughs> Hunting party. I don't know what happened. This is the fifth time. I know. I don't get it. I told him <laughs> not to go up there. Oh, man. Yeah. So that one's that one's interesting because, I mean, this is the epitome of unexplained. Like weird stuff started happening. A, a guy killed by a single blow that no human could be strong enough to 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 administer. Like we, we've seen some strong people like like some people who are capable of amazing feats. And something did like a single blow that no human could could do like what? Right. It's uh, jeez. So just to put this in perspective, Abe Wolders was the world's strongest man in 1951. Um, 
And he's a guy, I mean, numerous powerlifting and strength stuff. Like, uh, he was six foot, 276 pounds during his career. And people are saying that whatever killed this, like that dude, the dude chopping wood was stronger than this. That's insane. Right. So that is the story of Portlock, Alaska. What 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 else what what else you got, guy? Uh, I'm gonna talk about the Dietloff Pass. Love it. Um, so the the Dietloff Pass um is in Russia. Um, six nine nine people ended up dead. Um, they were hiking in the Ural Mountains. Um, three of them died from physical trauma. Six of them died from hypothermia. Uh, and then one person. Uh, died one fatal skull injury, two with fatal chest trauma, and one with an additional skull fracture. Those were non-fatal injuries on those people. Um, basically, what happened was is they were they were like hiking in the snow in the mountains in Russia, and they stopped uh, to make base camp for the night, if you will, um, and they were basically never heard from again. Uh, a couple days later or so. When uh, another um, group went through, uh, they found their bodies. Uh, a lot of them were, like, mangled. Like, some of them were, like, way up in, like, 20, 30 feet up in a tree. No one knew how they got there. Like, people's faces were ripped off. Um, it was a bloody mess. Um, there's a lot of theories that have gone on around about this. Um one of the biggest ones is, of course, uh, thinking like yetis or some type of native, like mythical creature in the mountains, um, just tore them apart. The uh, the Russian investigation quoted it as a compelling natural force had caused the deaths. Yes, uh, and that's what it actually ended up being. They actually figured out what actually happened. Oh, dang. Um, Basically, what actually happened was the way that they they dug a flat spot in the mountain, it created an avalanche, oh. and that's how people ended up in the trees. That's how people's faces got ripped off, you know, stuff like that. Um, there's also theories of uh, before the avalanche, there was a, a specific wind pattern that whipped through the area that uh, caused like confusion and stuff. Um, and that's why a lot of these people were like outside of their tents and like wearing next to nothing. They were, you know, disoriented and confused because of this wind pattern that whipped through. Um, but, uh, yeah, basically it was, uh, an avalanche that is what it actually ended up being. But there were a lot of theories, uh, in the meantime between the actually like scientists actually figured out what happened. Uh, some people were saying that it was, um, like I said, like yetis or some type of like mystical creature. Right. Which is, especially when you start talking, like I was reading through it while you were talking and uh, some of the things that happened were like people were missing eyes. Yeah. Somebody's tongue was cut out. Yeah. Like, just weird stuff. Um, other things are they were thinking that potentially military involvement. Maybe it was like a test zone and the Russian military was testing like infrasonic weapons that like caused an avalanche or you know disoriented them and they like walked off cliffs and shit like that uh you know just really 
really weird stuff that happened. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's slightly depressing that it actually got solved because now all the, like the myth and the, the thought theory behind it can go away because we actually know what happened. So, but interestingly enough, I have found a list of what is considered contradictory evidence that is evidence contradicting the avalanche theory. Oh, do okay. tell. So uh, there are five bullet points here. One, the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within an, a month of the event were covered in a very shallow layer of snow. And had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. Uh, this would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. Uh, over 100 expeditions to the re- this is the second one. Over 100 expeditions to the region have been held since the incident, and none of them have ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics related or revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions, quote unquote, found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes and but had significantly steeper slopes were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting during February. When the incident occurred, there was no such conditions. Third one, an analysis of the terrain and slope showed that even if there had been a very specific avalanche that found its way into the area, the path would have gone past the tent. The tent had collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. Uh, point four was diata. Dyatlov. Dyatlov. Sorry, I like trust. Or at me, least that's that's how I've, I pronounce it. I've been butchering NFL names for three weeks, so this isn't new. Uh, was an experienced skier and much older, and the and the much older Zolotyrov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere near the path of a potential avalanche. And footprint footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people running in panic from either real or imagined danger. All the footprints leading away from the tent and toward the woods were consistent with individuals who are walking at a normal pace. I also don't know that you would see footprints if an avalanche happened. Right. That's also a very valid point. Um. I don't know. There's just, uh, but then again, that's the avalanche theory is coming from Russian scientists. And right. Let's be honest. They're not exactly the most truthful people out there. Please don't KGB me. <laughs> um, and, and now there's like dueling reports, like somebody repeated the 2015 investigation. Then they did a model just recently in 2021. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of weird theories. Yeah. Um, like, obviously, like, anything up in the mountains, you're going to have, like, the Yeti stuff. Um, that's just kind of a given. Um, but, like, I, I I really like the theory of, like, the catabatic wind. Uh, yeah, I just came across that one. Uh, that one is actually pretty interesting that the wind, the way the wind was whipping through the valley caused the confusion. And uh, it basically put them into a panic and they just fled their tents and like walked off cliffs and climbed trees and just did all kinds of weird shit. Um, you know, let's be honest, it's Russia. It's entirely possible that they were testing weapons up there and they just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yep. I mean, who knows? 
it's about all I got on that one. I mean, it's just, it's very interesting. There's not really a lot to go on with that one. Yeah, uh, not many people actually know anything about that. Yeah, uh, when you first mentioned the name pre-recording, I didn't know that I knew about this one, but I did. Yeah, um, like upon you telling us about it and, re- and me reading about it, so that was super fun. Yeah. But uh, yeah, moving on. What do you got? Uh, my next one is going to be the Orang Madan. Oh, this one's good. Uh, the SS Orang Madan is a supposed is an alleged ghost ship. Which, according to various sources, became a shipwreck in Dutch in the Dutch East Indies, uh, which is modern day Indonesia, in the Straits of Malacca waters. Um, its entire crew had died under mysterious circumstances, either in 1940, 1947, or 1948, depending upon the newspaper source. Uh, there are allegedly people who think the story of the Orang Madan is just an urban legend. Well, to be fair, there's to be really foul. no there's really no supporting evidence other than these stories. Like no one has any evidence that this ship ever existed. There's no photos, there's no um there's literally nothing except word of mouth from these people that it happened. And then right. there's people that say it was in, you know, 41 or 45 or 47 or you know, depending on who you're talking to, it was in a completely different place. Like sometimes it's in the the, the Dutch East Indies around you know Indonesia. Sometimes it's in the Atlantic. Sometimes it's you know it, it's all over the place. So personally, for me, I believe that this is one of those like urban legend ghost ship type deals that right. never actually happened, but it's still interesting nonetheless. So um, on the skepticism side of things. Um, there's a lot of authors that note their inability to find any mention of the case uh, in the shipping register. Uh, no yeah, that's the other thing. No one can no one can find any evidence that this ship ever existed. Right. Uh, so there's no registration records for a ship by the name of the Orang Madan. Could be located in in uh, various countries, including in the Netherlands. Uh, Roy, some author, states that the identity of the silver star reported to have been involved in their failed rescue attempt has been established with high probability. The complete lack of information on the sunken ship itself has given rise to suspicion about the origins and credibility of the account ship logs for the silver star did not even show a record of, a sh- of such a rescue attempt. Uh, the author and others put forward the possibility that the accounts of among others, the date location names of the ship involved in circumstances of the incident may have been inaccurate or exaggerated or the story story may be completely fictitious. Right. I mean, that's, that's the other thing that could be, it could be all the names of the ships and could everything be could be completely wrong. So, you know, I'll, I'll give this one like a 50, 50. Right. So, and here's, here's the fun part of it. Uh, so the story of the SS Orang Madan is that the ship sent out a Morse code SOS. Um, and basically I'm trying to see, there was a bunch of like coherent words said, uh, you know, you know, captain and crew all dead on bridge, okay. stuff like that. So, uh, and then it was a bunch of jumbled mess. And the last three words that came through were, I now die or something like that. Or so now I die. According to the story at some point in time, in or around June 1947, uh, two American vessels navigating the Straits of Malacca, the city of 
Baltimore and the city and the Silver Star were the two ship names. Um, among others, passing by, picked up several distress messages for the nearby Dutch merchant ship, the Orang Madan. A radio operator aboard the troubled vessel sent the following message in Morse code. SOS from Orang Madan. We float. All officers, including the captain, dead in chart room and on bridge. Probably whole crew dead. A few confused dots and dashes of Morse code later, two words came through clearly. They were, I die. Then, after a chilling, after the, that chilling message, there was nothing more heard. The Silver Star crew eventually located and boarded the apparently undamaged Orang Madan in an attempt to rescue. Uh, the ship was found littered with corpses, including the carcass of a dog, everywhere, with the dead bodies found sprawled on their backs, the frozen and allegedly badly frightened faces of the deceased upturned to the sun above with their mouths gaping open and eyes straight ahead with the corpses resembling horrible caricatures. No survivors were located. No visible signs of injuries on the dead bodies were observed. Uh, just as the ship was prepared for a tow by the Silver Star to a nearby port, a fire suddenly broke out in the ship's number four cargo hold, forcing the boarding party to hastily evacuate the doomed Dutch freighter, thus preventing any further investigation to be carried out soon after the Orang Madan was witnessed exploding before finally sinking. Uh, reports mean, even have convenient. the dog... Well, and reports even have, like, the dog being dead in a petrified snarl. Mm-hmm. Like, not just keeled over and, like, went to bed, like, snarling angrily. Right. So, there are some theories that if this does exist, um, part one of the reasons that it may not, like, that it, you're, that people have had trouble finding the name and such is that uh, they... People, there are people who believe that the name Orang Madan was not a registered ship name uh, because they were transporting unsecured hazardous material from China or Japan. Yep. After the war, yeah. Uh, that it could, that it could. Uh, people hypothesize that the Madan might have been involved in smuggling operations of chemical substances such as a combination of potassium cyanide and nitroglycerin, or even wartime stocks of ner- nerve agents. Uh, according to these theories, seawater would have been would have entered the ship's hold, reacting with the cargo to release the toxic gas, then caused the crew to succumb to asphyxia and or poisoning. Later, the seawater would have reacted with the nitroglycerin, causing the reported fire and explosion. Uh, another theory is that the ship was transporting nerve gas, which the Japanese military had been storing in China during the war, which was handed over to the U.S. military at the end of the war. Uh, no U.S. ship could transport it as it would leave a paper trail. It was therefore loaded onto a non-registered ship for transport to the U.S. or an island in the Pacific. So there are some people who have pitched a reason why this name and ship doesn't exist. There's no paperwork and stuff like that. If it was like a black ops type deal mission to get nerve agents or cyanide or whatever out of China, you know, and the U.S. was doing it but didn't want to be involved... The U.S. is real good at getting other people to do their dirty work. Well, and I mean, and hiding the fact that they're involved. Uh, you know, and you have to think how many times did something like this happen, where they load something onto a merchant ship, and then, like, they set it up where it's pitched as a merchant ship named something, and then like they're able to peel off the name over it. Sure. Yeah. And then put it back, put a different name back on when it, you know, when it safely ports. But hey, while you're out there, you have to be something else because right. if you get like if you get caught or if you get if something happens and there's an issue, we don't want it traced. Right. Exactly. That's an easy answer. Right. Yeah. Just so. paint, paint the name of a different ship on real quick. Yeah. You know, 
So and, uh, this one has actually made it to some pop culture. Uh, it's mentioned in the 2016 film Ghostbusters. Uh, it's the story of the 2019 video game, the Dark Pictures anthology Man of Madan. Uh, was influenced by the ship's story. And its mysterious sinking tragedy was told as the prologue of the 2018 film De Lankangtu. Which I don't I know that the, the articles don't state it, but it, it really sounds like the, the story of the Orang Madan is pretty much the basis for the movie Ghost Ship. Yeah, it very much was. Yeah, I know like the I've I've read like a bunch of articles on it and no one no one seems to mention that, but you know, Ghost Ship is probably one of my favorite horror movies out there um it, it's, i now want it's to eerily, watch that it's eerily, you've never seen ghost ship uh somebody in my household doesn't appreciate scary movies no, so i don't watch true. them uh it's actually really it's really good and you will like it's the same thing like you know ghost ship found it's a luxury liner instead of like a instead of a, a freight liner uh, like a freight liner carrying cargo uh there's some cursed object that ends up getting everyone to like everyone involved in this conspiracy to like steal these gold bars that they all end up betraying each other and everyone on the ship ends up dead. And then this ship is like floating around randomly for years and they find it and they board it and they, then they kind of uncover what happened. And at the end, the ship explodes. Right. Um, you know, but it's almost like a one-to-one it, it, damn close. Yeah, close enough. That Definitely like, damn I, close. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand why all these articles don't mention that legend being like the basis for that movie. Mostly because probably it's, if you look up the movie, it would probably say it. But if you look up that article, like it wasn't referenced. It wasn't. Right. But like details of it were taken. Sure. But yeah, yeah. Um, So that'll be enough for the Orang Madan. So. We have one more each, I believe. So what do you got, buddy? Uh, one second. Where am I? Uh, oh, the Colony of Roanoke. The Colony of Roanoke. One of the first uh, colonies settled in the New World here. Um, basically, uh, I believe it was 115, 115 colonists came over in 1887, 1787. Hang on. Uh, the first Roanoke colony was founded by Governor Ralph Lane in 1585 Sorry. on Roanoke Sorry. Island, what is now Dare County, North Carolina. Um, so they set up this colony there. Um, that one failed. Yeah. Then a second colony led by John White. Right. Which is known as like the, the John White one is the, the lost Roanoke colony. Right. That one uh, was in 1587. That was in 1587. Uh, 115 English settlers arrived. Uh, in what is now North Carolina. Um, later that year, uh, the guy who led the expedition, John White, decided he was going to sail back to England to get more supplies and bring more people back. Um, during that time, uh, there was a big naval war going on in England, um, and every ship was basically conscripted conscripted into service. Um to fight so he didn't end up making it back to the roanoke colony until 1590 about three years after he left uh when he got back there was no trace of anyone left behind except one word croatoan carved into a single tree or pole however it depends what article you're reading whether it was carved in a tree or like on a 
you know, the side of a building or a pole or something like that. Uh, the article I'm looking at said it was carved into the palisade. I don't know what that is. No, I don't either. Um, basically, no one knows. Stake wall or a paling. A fence or defensive wall made from iron or wooden stakes. So basically what you would see when entering the colony. Sure. Um, so he, he basically like he left his wife and child and like his grandchild there to go back to England. And when he came back, everyone was gone without a trace. Uh, no one really knows what happened to them. Um, there's a lot of theories that they were killed by the natives uh, because, I mean, in a three-year gap, a lot can happen. Sure. Um, you know, killed by the natives. Um, there's other theories that they left that colony and moved further inland, uh, but didn't, like, leave a note behind other than Croatoan. Um, and then there's other theories that um, are probably more plausible that they just kind of, like, assimilated into the native culture in the area. Yeah, so... Um... The Anglo-Spanish War, which del- which was what delayed White's return to Roanoke until 1590, uh, he returned, sounded forfeited, uh, fortified but abandoned, and then the cryptic word Croatoan, and then uh, he interpreted that to the colonists ro- relocated to Croatoan Island. Uh, before he could follow the lead, rough seas and a lost anchor forced the rescue mission to return to England. Uh, and then goes on to say that... Um, the fate of the approximately 112 to 121 colonists remains unknown. Speculation that they had assimilated with nearby Native American communities appears in writings as early as 1605. Investigations by the Jamestown colonists produced reports that the Roanoke settlers had been massacred, as well as stories of people with European features in Native American villages, but no hard evidence was produced. Uh, interest in the matter fell into decline until 1834, when George Bancroft published the, his account of the events in a history of the United States. Bancroft's description of the colonists, particularly White's infant granddaughter, Virginia Dare, cast them into foundational figures in American culture, and it captured the public imagination. Despite this renewed interest, modern research has not produced the archaeological evidence necessary to solve the mystery. I mean, truth be told, like, I... Uh... It's one of two things. The natives either massacred them and took their bodies back to wherever the natives' camps were and did whatever they did with them, or more likely they probably assimilated with the natives uh, just for the benefit of they probably had technology and things that the natives didn't, and they both benefited from being together. Um, And it was probably easier to be uh, more inland at that time than right on the sea. Um then again, it is North Carolina, so it's usually pretty nice down there. But, you know. Yeah. So there's also some fun uh, nef- nefariousness at work here. Mm. Um, Walter Raleigh. Um, ah, yes. So Sir Walter Raleigh. Uh, so let's see. It looks like uh, White failed to locate his colonists in 1590. His report suggested they simply relocated and might have yet be found alive. Uh, it served in Raleigh's purpose to keep the matter in doubt. So long as the settlers could not be proven dead, he could legally maintain his claim on Virginia. Uh, nevertheless, a 1594 petition was made to declare Ananias Dare legally dead so that his son, John Dare, could inherit his estate. The petition was granted in, fi- in 1597. 
Uh, I mean, just people who had it in their best interest for this colony to Never stay. Never to show up, yeah. MIA. Um, I mean, just so much. There's, there's still to this day like so much, uh, like archaeological evidence is still being dug up. Yeah, the, I mean, North Carolina itself is just kind of like a gold mine. I mean, for fuck's sake, they found Blackbeard ship off the coast of uh, yeah. North Carolina, like southern North Carolina. Yeah, but yeah, they found. Uh, they knew there was a shipwreck out there. They found it years years ago. I think like the late nineties. Uh, they found it, and then through like more like archaeological digging uh, and artifacts that they found, uh, they they always kind of thought that it could be Blackbeard's ship because right. it was reported that he sailed north to like the North Carolina area and retired there and beached his ship and sunk it. Right. Um, but they weren't sure until they found like the cannons and a lot of the artifacts. Um, and from this point, from once they started doing that stuff, uh, it's pretty much confirmed that, uh, the ship that they found out there is Blackbeard ship. Like right. it, which is super cool. Like there's no pirate more famous than Blackbeard. Right. And to have his ship sitting off, like, I think it's like, uh, it's still in North Carolina waters, so it's within three miles. I want right. to say it's only like 500 yards or maybe off like 1,500 yards off the coast. Right. And it's and it's only in like 26 feet of water, something God, like we that. we got to do a pirate episode. Yes, we do. Good Lord. Uh, so a little bit more here on Roanoke before we get into our last little bit here. Uh, they're, they've been doing archaeological excavations from eight. They didn't start like digging for stuff there until 1887. Right. So... 300 years after this whole thing right um and then like it's still going on today so they discovered a native american burial site in roanoke um they excavated the fort didn't find anything of significance would later make several compelling finds in the in the 90s but nothing could positively be linked to the 1587 colony as opposed to the 1585 outpost um, Hurricane Emily uncovered a number of Native American artifacts along with Cape Creek in Buxton, North Carolina. Uh, anthropologist David Sutton organized an excavation in 1995. It, like, it's one of those things. They, that they found gonna, a brass ring, not a gold ring. It's gonna like, it's gonna take forever, but like archaeology fascinates me. Like, I wish I could go on some of these archaeological digs and like see some of these places. Um, just to just to be involved, just to like actually see this stuff, you know. Like, but you know, it 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 really depends like how far outwards they expand their search. Like, it seems like right now they're pretty much just searching on like the location that is known to be where the colony was or where it supposedly was. Um, so. You know, I, I feel like if they maybe look elsewhere outside of there into more where the natives lived, um, they they might find if they can even find these places. So they actually found uh, from 2011 to 2019, they investigated a place called Site X. Um, they looked at well, when they looked at a. When they looked at White's map from 1858, um, under a light table, they found two corrective patches on top of it. Oh. So they looked at the patches, like what was underneath the patches, 
and they found where the uh, Roanoke and Chowan Rivers meet. Uh, they found a cover of a symbol that represented a fort. Uh, the symbol are, symbols are not to scale. It covers an area on the map representing thousands of acres in Bertie County, North Carolina. However, the location is presumed to be in or near the 16th century Weapomic village of Metaquem. In 2012, when a team prepared to excavate where the symbol indicated, archaeologist Nicholas Lacuti, Lacetti, Lucetti, uh, suggested they name the location site X, as in X marks the spot. Uh, they found some stuff, but they can't tell if it was from the 1585 colony or the 1650s. So, like a lot of a lot of fun, a lot of interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of reference to this in pop culture. I mean, American Horror Story did an entire entire season. series. Uh, which was fucking terrible. Um, well, they also so like they they've tied a lot of it to like witchcraft. They've tied right, a lot, like, yeah. I mean, and that, that's not just through American Horror Story. Like there is, right, yeah, you know, from Native American folklore, even yeah. they found stuff that could be potentially weirdness that went on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so we have about well, like right around twelve minutes left, and I don't know if that's going to be enough time to dive into this one, but. Um, this is my, like the last one that we're going to do today. Uh, the Mysterious Disappearances in National Parks. Ugh. This one thousands deep. Thousands. So if this intrigues you, uh, you can find people who talk about stuff like this on TikTok. You can find stuff about this all over the Internet. Um there are accounts that up to 1,600 people have gone missing yeah. on public lands without a trace. Um, that's just since they started counting. Right. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> like there's one, like, they were looking for a shirtless kid without shoe, like, like a shirtless kid in running shoes. They engaged 15 dogs, 200 people on foot, horseback, and ATV. An infrared-equipped airplane flew over the area, and a $10,000 reward for was posted for information on the kid's disappearance, and they never found him. Right. Uh, like, the most compelling evidence about this is that if you look at maps of where these disappearances occur, and then you look at maps of cave systems in the United States... A lot of these disappearances occur where there are, like, massive amounts of, like, hidden and uncharted cave systems. Um, so, I mean, one theory is that, like, these people just go into these caves and start exploring and then they get lost, get lost in the caverns and, and die in the caverns or, you know, no one's actually charted these, no, because, these caverns because they're, they're so, so inter they're so vast and they're so intertwined. Um, like... But, like, th that being said, you know, it's never been documented that somebody went into these caves. No. And came out on a short end and was like, yeah, I got lost as shit. Like, right. Um, so that many people is tough. The There's a theory out there that good old Teddy Roosevelt created the national park system to protect the government and kind of hide whatever is actually happening on these lands, right. whether it's just, listen, we're going to lose people in these caverns and like the government, the government admits to this, like they admit to the, these caverns, uh, like people get lost. Yeah. Like MIA gone forever, never seen again Bye. And we don't know why. Right. And with the incredible technology that we have, 
you'd think that there'd be a way to look like, I don't know, start in one start at one entrance of a cavern and string lights. So at least you can go backwards. Right. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, tracking technology. 20, I don't know. 2021 Hansel and Gretel. Instead of leaving breadcrumbs, just put lights on the wall or like have a drone go first or like a really high tech RC car or like a Mars Rover. Right. It can like see in the dark, light the way and get a clue. They haven't done it. Right. Like, and that that's weird. Um, like some of the more famous ones, the I have a list here. Ten mysterious disappearances in national parks. Uh, Bessie and Glenn Hyde back in 1928. So this has been going on a long time. Um, they were traveling down the Colorado River and they wanted to like Bessie wanted to turn back. Glenn was like, no, nah, keep going. And they just ended up discovering his boat and it was undisturbed, upright, full of surprise, full, full, of, full of supplies. And the couple was gone. Like, right. I mean, one of the more supernatural uh, theories out there are uh, the creatures known as uh, Wendigos. Yes. um, Which are basically former humans that somehow turn into these creatures. Um, I don't know the entire mythology. You have the computer if you want to look it up real quick. So a Wendigo is a Native American mythological creature or evil spirit, which originates from the folklore of the First Nations based in in and around the East Coast forests of Canada, the Great Plains region of the U.S., and the Great Lakes region of the United States and Canada, grouped in modern ethnology as speakers of Algonquin family languages. The Wendigo is often said to be a a malevolent spirit, sometimes depicted as a creature with human-like characteristics which possesses human beings. The Wendigo is known to invoke feelings of insatiable greed and hunger, the desire to cannibalize other humans, as well as the propensity to commit murder in those that fall under its influence. There is a lot more to this. We will do an entire episode on weird and creepy mythology because I love that stuff. Yes. We're going to save stuff like that for October, though, for spooky season. I mean, season. We, we have so many things we could do. We could do a two-month lead into October and still not have enough and still have too much stuff to get through in this October. This is true. So. I say we start the spooky stuff September 1st. Yeah, I'm in. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like, just, but these disappearances, like, there have been instances of, like, unidentified body parts yeah. washing up on the shores of rivers. Yeah. I um, mean, the theory is is that, like, basically, like, Wendigos are just, like, abducting people because they live in the cave systems. Uh, they're just abducting these people and eating them, yeah. basically. Uh, the other the other thought is that, uh, because part of the Wendigo folklore is that they end up possessing new people. So, like, they possess one person in the party, that person, like, it's usually the leader of the party, that person drives the party closer to yeah. the cave system where they, they can then destroy and cannibalize their party. Uh, in the instances of, like, young, of young people who went missing, like, I mean, on this list, Alfred Bellharts was a five-year-old. Uh, Catherine Van Alst was an eight-year-old. I mean, she does, and she like disappeared from Devil's Den State Park. Uh, aptly if named that's much virtue signaling. I don't know like, what the fuck is. Um, I mean, th- th- so many of these. I like we could do an entire episode on just these disappearances, right? Uh, and the entire point of this episode was to talk about histories, mysteries, and unsolved things. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever be able to solve the national park debacle. No, I mean, the, the cave systems are just way too massive. Like 
like would, it nor- would take normal, hundreds of years. Normal people to... don't have the technology and the wherewithal to do this. You know who does? The government. And they're just choosing not to. Yeah. Who has put the boundaries of the state parks so far outside Where of the entrances of are. the caves are. They're like, don't go there. Right. Like, it's almost Stay as on if... the outskirts of the, the, the national parks. Like, you venture too far in the middle and you're fucked. Yeah. It's almost like they planned it. So if you go in there, they're like, well, that's your fault. Right. <laughs> you dove too deep. Like, if they made a Keanu Reeves movie about this, it would be... They went too far. We went too far. They saw too much. We saw too much. You're welcome. <laughs> so that, that'll about wrap it up for this episode of Common Debauchery. Thanks thanks for sticking with us through a little bit more of a ridiculous but fun topic. Um, we like the ridiculous we do. fun, we like we, we like the ridiculous. We like the fun. We like the nerdy. We do it all. We've covered wrestling. We've covered sports. We've covered conspiracy theories. We've covered unsolved mysteries. We've covered video games. Uh, we do it all, and in a couple weeks, you can look forward to the weird, wild, wacky, and horror side of things stemming toward one of my favorite holidays, blatantly your favorite holiday in Halloween. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Here's the thing, though. Halloween's not a holiday. It's a lifestyle. It very much is. So uh, you guys can look forward to joining us on that. We have a really cool idea for next episode that I'm super pumped, so we're uh, we're going to play Dear Common Debauchery. Yes. Uh, so... We will explain what we're going to do for that next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm actually really looking forward to it. You know what, though? Let's explain it now. Okay. See if we can get anyone. Uh, so basically, we're going to do Dear Common Debauchery. We're, it, we're going to be a ripoff of like the Dear, Dear Abby. Abby columns. Um, we're going to go online to like these Dear Abby websites. We're going to find what these... We're going to look for like the really like ridiculous stuff that people write. And uh, we're going to give our unsolicited, probably terrible advice. Yeah. Uh, but if you guys want to play along at home, uh, we'll do it completely anonymous. We won't mention your name or anything like that. Uh, we'll do the same thing that they do, like hopeless, right. you know, yeah, sleepless in Seattle, hopeless yeah, in exactly. Get a hold of us on Facebook, hopeless um, in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, you know, me and me and uh, Nightmare are both on Facebook. You can find us. You can well, message us. I'll, I'll, right. po- I'll post. I'll post a Google Doc. Yeah on the common debauchery facebook and we'll share it and we'll see if we can get anybody to dear common debauchery us yeah. if not we'll just do the well you know we don't want to do that way we will if we're going to do if we're going to do it we will do it that way but we want you guys to interact with us we want you to be part of the show so look for that and submit stuff to us for dear common debauchery questions and who knows maybe this will be something we do more often than not if we have a good response so uh with that being said, Common Debauchery is part of the BICBP Radio Network, www.bicbp-radio.com, Common-Debauchery. Uh, you can find us on, outside of our website, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcast dribble from. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook by searching Common Debauchery. If you type in Common Debauchery to Google, I promise we're the only thing that pops up. It's like I picked the name that way on purpose. So thanks for tuning in. Like, follow, share, subscribe, do all the cool stuff. Follow us both on social medias and uh, specifically the Facebook group. And with that being said, I'm the Nightmare. I'm Rotten Jack. And this has been Common Debauchery. The following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. In a post-apocalyptic world, decimated by a global pandemic, two men will arise to talk about 
Movies. Featuring the Quote King, Austin Kelm. The Wizard of Jaws, Derek Jaws. They are the Podducers. Ducers.